Recently, special counsel Robert Mueller wrapped up his report into claims that Donald Trump colluded with Russia during the 2016 presidential campaign. But unlike the spectacle of the release of the Ken Starr report, where news cameras followed it being delivered in theatrical fashion to Congress, the Mueller report has not seen the light of day as of this recording. New Attorney General William P. Barr instead issued a four-page letter summarizing the findings. According to Barr's interpretation of Mueller's report, quote, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him, end quote. Conservatives and liberals alike have seized on Barr's words, particularly the first half of this statement, and have concluded that, well, Trump was vindicated. The Democrats have egg on their faces. And to not accept the report is just sour grapes at best and wanting a terrible fate for a country at worst. Here's the problem with that narrative. It's hard to accept the report when we don't really know what the report says because the Mueller report has not been released. But many Americans are treating the matter as if the Barr letter is the Mueller report. This rush to believe in Trump's exoneration based on incomplete information reminds me of kind of an embarrassing situation I experienced when I was a teenager. So right before passing the eighth grade and heading to high school, I found out that I was selected to participate in a summer program at Michigan State University focused on exposing high-achieving teens of color to what we now call STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. There were maybe about two or three dozen students selected for the program across the entire state of Michigan. During these six weeks in East Lansing, we attended hard science-related workshops across the university led by MSU professors. That summer, which was back in 1995, I wrote my first email and we built small toy cars propelled by small CO2 cartridges. These were really neat experiences. Now, what also excited me as a 14-year-old girl who went to an all-girls Catholic school were the boys. There was one boy in particular named Mike that I thought was cute. He's from a suburb right outside Detroit, and he seemed cool. It's fun to talk to and hang out with, and we hung out pretty often during the first part of this experience. But there was no way I was gonna tell him I liked him. Well, at some point, I made the mistake of mentioning my feelings for Mike to my roommate, Angela. And a couple of days after that, Mike inexplicably stopped speaking to me. I asked him what was up, but he wouldn't say anything. So I left it alone. Later, I find out that Mike had heard from Angela I had a crush on him, but he didn't like me back. He told the other kids I was stalking him, and Angela was spreading the same rumor. Even though in reality, I had left him alone after he just stopped speaking to me out of the blue. And not long after that, Mike and Angela started dating. So yeah, Angela had an ulterior motive for spreading this rumor. But because of their actions, the other kids in the program believed that this shy fat girl in their group 
was obsessed with this popular boy with no desire to date her to the point of stalking him, even though it wasn't true. And I got bullied the rest of the time we were there based on a lie. 16th century writer Jonathan Swift said it best, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. On February 14, 2019, William Barr became the U.S. Attorney General, filling a space formerly occupied by Jeff Sessions, who resigned, or really was forced out, by Donald Trump. Just a little over a month later, on March 22nd, the Mueller report, which is the product of two years of investigation and $25 million from We the Taxpayer, landed on Barr's desk. Just two days after the report was handed over, Barr decided that instead of making the report public, he would issue a four-page letter that would be his summary of the report. In it, he states, quote, the special counsel's investigation did not find that the Trump campaign or anyone associated with it conspired or coordinated with Russia in its efforts to influence the 2016 U.S. presidential election, end quote. But then Barr also states, quote, the special counsel therefore did not draw a conclusion one way or the other as to whether the examined conduct constituted obstruction. Instead, for each of the relevant actions investigated, the report sets out evidence on both sides of the question and leaves unresolved what the special counsel views as difficult issues of law and fact concerning whether the president's actions and intent could be viewed as obstruction, end quote. Dear Leader sees this as vindication, stating, quote, it was a complete and total exoneration, end quote. But at the same time, his Justice Department is dragging its feet when Congress has asked for the entire report. As of this recording, the Mueller report has not been made public. The problem right now is that the narrative created by the Barr letter and that Trump has run with is giving the public the perception that Trump was vindicated by the probe, but it's based on a high-level game of telephone. Even some in Mueller's team have said that the bar letter does not accurately reflect their findings. And not only that, several indictments have come out of the Mueller probe, so this idea that they've found nothing doesn't seem quite right. Now, of course, it could be that Mueller's actual conclusions were close to what Barr stated. And there could be several reasons for that. There really was nothing, or Mueller found nothing or he felt that any Trump crimes were outside of the scope of the investigation, or that whatever was found he felt should be handled by Congress through its impeachment power. But we don't know because the actual report hasn't been released. But Jay, Barr read the report and gave us what he thought. Why shouldn't we be able to trust it? Isn't this just liberals not wanting to accept the truth? You don't want someone who was just installed by the very man who was being investigated summarizing the conclusions of that investigation. Even if the summary is not biased, 
it's not going to be trusted because the person who wrote it is inherently compromised. Mueller is a Republican. Yet the reason many people, including liberals, trusted him to run the investigation is because he served as FBI director under a Republican and a Democratic president. And not only that, he served 12 years, two years longer than a typical term for FBI director because President Obama vouched for him. Now, it remains to be seen if this trust was misguided or misplaced. But the point is, you don't want the appearance of bias, especially when it comes to allegations of a serious nature. But the issues with Barr go beyond his appointment by Trump. Prior to his appointment as Attorney General, in June of 2018, as a private citizen, he wrote a letter to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and Assistant Attorney General Steve Engel, expressing that he was, quote, deeply concerned with the institutions of the presidency and the Department of Justice, end quote. In the letter, Barr stated, quote, Mueller should not be permitted to demand that the president submit to interrogation about alleged obstruction. Apart from whether Mueller has a strong enough factual basis for doing so, Mueller's obstruction theory is fatally misconceived. As I understand it, his theory is premised on a novel and legally insupportable reading of the law. Moreover, in my view, if credited by the department, it would have grave consequences far beyond the immediate confines of this case and would do lasting damage to the presidency and to the administration of law within the executive branch, end quote. Barr also stated that it is impossible for the president to have obstructed justice due to the inherent constitutional powers of the executive office. In other words, even if evidence is found that the president obstructed justice, it doesn't matter because the president has the power to do so. Despite at that point being an outsider to the probe, Barr had already come to a conclusion about the Mueller probe and expressed them to officials overseeing Mueller at the time. That type of interference would have led a person of at least some integrity to recuse themselves from overseeing the probe when he became attorney general. But unlike Sessions, who, despite his own brand of awfulness and vileness, had at least a tiny sliver of integrity to recuse himself, William Barr didn't do that. It's a clear conflict of interest, and that's a problem. But let's be real, I'm sure that Trump appointed him because of his views on the investigation and probably because he knew he wouldn't recuse himself if appointed to the post. But there's likely another reason Barr was appointed. He has a history as a fixer. So this goes back to the Cold War. During the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union are fighting an ideological war democracy, really capitalism, versus communism. And while the U.S. and the Soviet Union did not fight each other directly, they often backed regimes and non-state actors, such as militias and insurgent groups in other countries who were fighting each other or fighting against one of the superpowers. The U.S. and Soviet Union would invest in the side they supported using money, arms, supplies, intelligence, and sometimes troops of their own. Wars were waged on five out of seven continents that had ties to the Cold War. 
In most, if not all, of the military conflicts either the U.S. or the Soviet Union were involved in during the Cold War's duration from 1947 to 1991, and there were a lot of them, were related in some way to the Cold War. In 1979, the Sandinista National Liberation Front, a socialist party in Nicaragua with connections to Cuba and the Soviet Union, overthrew the regime of Anastasio Somoza. Somoza was a capitalist dictator, and the Sandinistas had popular support, but the run-up to the regime change was violent and deadly and lasted throughout the 1970s. Once the Sandinistas were in power, a collection of counter-revolutionary guerrilla groups called the Contras rose up to wage war against the Sandinista government. The Contras were generally a mix of former military from the Somoza regime, disillusioned former Sandinistas, and others who weren't directly involved on either side of the war to overthrow the Somoza regime, but opposed the Sandinistas. Now, in the mid-1980s, President Ronald Reagan announced the Reagan Doctrine, which essentially stated that the U.S. would come to the aid of any government or movement that opposed communism. This was inspired by the Brezhnev Doctrine, a statement outlined by Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev in 1968 that any wins for communism were permanent and irreversible. So, in Brezhnev's view, the Soviet Union had a right to intervene in communist countries in order to strengthen communism. But while the Reagan Doctrine was announced in 1985, it was in effect long before that. The U.S. government opposed the Sandinistas and were alarmed of increasing communist presence on this half of the globe and so close to home. So they decided to get involved and support the Contras starting in the early 1980s. The CIA encouraged unification of the Contras and provided them with arms, supplies, and strategic oversight. Here in the States, popular opposition grew towards U.S. involvement in Nicaragua, especially because the Sandinistas had popular support, free elections, and the Contras were underperforming, among other reasons. And because of that, a series of bills were enacted called the Bolin Amendments, which sought to limit funding for assistance to the Contras. The strongest of these amendments was the third Bolin Amendment, which was passed by Congress and signed into law by Reagan in 1984. The third Bolin Amendment banned funds provided to the CIA and Department of Defense to be used in Nicaragua for military purposes. Another amendment passed in 1985 banned any funds used in Nicaragua, regardless of the agency that spent them, to be used for military purposes. So around the same time as the fighting in Nicaragua between the Sandinistas and the Contras, the Lebanese Civil War was being waged in the Middle East. Just briefly, the Lebanese Civil War occurred between 1975 and 1990. Lebanon was multicultural and included a population of people of different religions and sects. The Lebanese government at the start of the war was run by Maronite Christians who were historically advantaged during French colonial rule earlier in the 20th century and were supported by the West, including the United States. The Muslim population increased in relation to the Christian population in Lebanon due to the settlement of Palestinians who were kicked out of Israel during wars in 1948 and 1967. This led to the different non-Maronite groups, such as secular Pan-Arabists and Palestinian transplants, seeking more power. 
And this eventually led to a multifactional civil war between the government and a number of different anti-government militias and among the militias themselves. Many of these militias were allied with left-wing and pan-Arabist groups that had ties to the Soviet Union. And some Muslim factions were also assisted by the PLO, a Palestinian militant group run by Yasser Arafat, and Hezbollah, a Shia Muslim militant group backed by Iran. Well, between 1982 and 1991, Hezbollah captured over 100 foreign nationals as hostages in Lebanon, including American citizens. Now, the U.S. had been participating in indirect arms deals to Iran since 1981, but in 1985, the National Security Council, or NSC, got involved in another arms deal to Iran, but with the idea that if the U.S. supplied weapons to Iran, who was fighting a war with Iraq at the time, they would help pressure Hezbollah to release American hostages in Lebanon. This deal in and of itself would be illegal because there was a law against aiding Iran in the Iran-Iraq war. Since Iran was viewed as a state sponsor of terrorism and because the U.S. was publicly allied with Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein the leader of Iraq who murdered thousands of his own people and who the U.S. waged wars against in the 1990s and 2000s, that Saddam. So by aiding Iran, the U.S. was playing both sides. And these exchanges with Iran were essentially funneled through Israel to get around the law. Then the NSC funneled some of the money received from the Iran arms deal to the Contras in the war in Nicaragua against the Sandinistas, which was also illegal due to the Bolin Amendments and other laws. These illegal exchanges of money were conducted by NSC staff member Oliver North with the approval of his boss, John M. Poindexter, the head of the NSC. So the NSC used this deal to circumvent two sets of laws that were aimed at keeping the U.S. from supporting Iran and the Nicaraguan Contras. The purported reason for the 1985 arms deal, the release of American hostages, proved unsuccessful and Iran didn't push Hezbollah to release the hostages. Many of these hostages were later released at different times during this period, but some were killed. Well, this secret deal came to light in November of 1986 and became a public scandal known as Iran-Contra. Both Oliver North and John Poindexter lost their jobs and were prosecuted. North testified that both Reagan and Vice President George H.W. Bush knew about the deal in advance of its execution, despite their denials. But Bush's later memoirs, released well after this event, after his vice presidency and later presidency, revealed that he did in fact know about the Iran-Contra deal. Besides North and Poindexter, there were several other members of Reagan's administration that were convicted of charges related to Iran-Contra. And one other person, Casper Weinberger, who had not yet stood trial. These legal proceedings happened over a period of several years, stretching into the presidential term of George H.W. Bush. But it was said that the Weinberger trial could bring to light information that would further implicate Bush and his predecessor Reagan in Iran-Contra and exposed them to potential legal and political consequences. 
as Bush was winding down his single term in office in late 1992. He was deciding on presidential pardons for the men involved in Iran-Contra. He likely knew that it might look bad to pardon people involved in a scandal where he was also implicated. So he consulted with the U.S. Attorney General, who had a very broad view of presidential powers. The AG recommended that these men involved in Iran-Contra all be pardoned, especially Weinberger, despite having not been convicted at that point or even having gone to trial. So Bush took his AG's advice and pardoned all the men involved, despite congressional and popular opposition. An attorney general's advice gave Bush cover to make a decision that essentially let him off the hook. These pardons, especially that of Weinberger, have been viewed by political observers as one of the most controversial uses of presidential pardon power historically. According to Lawrence E. Walsh, who was the independent counsel investigating Iran-Contra in 1986, quote, the Iran-Contra cover-up, which has continued for more than six years, has now been completed, end quote. And the U.S. Attorney General who recommended the pardons and therefore assisted in the cover-up? William P. Barr. As horrifying as it might be, the fact of the matter is, the Overton window has shifted to such a degree that in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter what the Mueller report actually says. Trump and his administration have committed enough heinous acts that even taken by themselves should be beyond the realm of acceptability. Separating refugee families, caging children, losing kids in a web of private Christian adoption services all over the country, ignoring Puerto Rico and disrespecting their local officials after the devastation and immense loss of life from Hurricane Maria, pushing the government not to recognize people who are transgender or gender nonconformist, demonizing athletes for protesting the slaughter of black people by police in the streets without due process, repeatedly attempting to dismantle the Affordable Care Act with no viable alternatives for health care, attacking the rights of women to their bodily autonomy in the name of saving the babies, using an executive order to bolster right-wing rhetoric on college campuses, declaring a national emergency to build a vanity wall, tacitly supporting Nazis, both sides, and downplaying or outright ignoring the real threat of white supremacy, while stoking irrational fear against Muslims and Central Americans, threatening local and state governments, as well as individuals, that criticize him or enact policies he opposes, such as sanctuary cities. And I'm sure I'm missing a lot more. But even that list by itself should be enough, more than enough, to anger Americans that these actions are being taken in our name. But there is a sizable percentage of Americans that either pretend it doesn't happen or twist themselves in knots to justify it. And the worst are those who claim Christ, yet deny the humanity of those God also loves, those who show us with their words and actions that their Lord and Savior is not an ancient Middle Eastern Jew who was executed by the Romans and rose from the dead in three days. Their Lord and Savior is a spiteful, entitled, orange demagogue in the White House. 
But while it doesn't matter what the Mueller report says, it does matter that it's made public. I know I say this a lot, but it bears repeating. The truth matters. Of course, what we do with that truth also matters, but the truth matters for its own sake. Recently, I was listening to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Addendum, and he put out an episode a couple of months ago where he was conversing with Daniele Bellelli, host of History on Fire. One of the things they discussed was the idea that as much as most Americans don't think of it this way, the U.S. is an empire, or in PR terms, the leader of the free world. But Carlin in particular argued that the U.S. is in a transition phase where we are declining as an empire. I would have to agree with them. The United States is a different type of empire than, say, the Romans or the Ottoman Turks. It's not like the U.S. has acquired a bunch of different countries and territories that are now part of the U.S. There are some, such as Texas, Louisiana, and Alaska, and Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, the Northern Mariana Islands, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. But the United States of America has a sphere of influence that these historical empires would have only dreamed of having. The United States has been extremely influential in the politics of many countries around the world. We've had a hand in backing regimes and overthrowing popularly elected governments of many countries on various continents. We have supported wars we ostensibly had nothing to do with through arms deals and alliances. We still have military bases in several countries around the globe. Some of them are in places where we are in current armed conflict, such as Afghanistan and Iraq, while others are in countries where we fought wars and armed conflicts in the past, such as Somalia, Germany, Japan, and South Korea. Still more are in countries like Brazil and Australia. And our reach is not only physical, but also cultural. Our dominant language, our dominant religion, our ideology, our norms and mores, our beliefs and prejudices, even the clothing and food and entertainment we enjoy, it's all exported worldwide. Even the term America, there is a North America and a South America with lots of countries included, but we've co-opted that term to refer to the United States of America and its citizens. What the United States lacks in real estate, we more than make up for in tentacles. But empires never last forever. When you're on top, Everyone else is gunning for you. Don't be caught sleeping. Catch is. You got to take a rest sometimes. You know, guys, we're living through the end of an empire. It won't take some outside country or some non-state actor, such as a terrorist network, to invade us for status as leader of the free world to be over. Could it be the final nail in the coffin sometime in the future? Sure, though it's not required. But the U.S. is destroying itself on its own. To have a functioning democracy, you need an educated and invested populace. When I say educated, I'm saying competently educated in terms of how government works, what the parties and the officials are doing, ideologies, current events, stuff like that. You don't have to have a degree in politics. Just be decently aware of how government works and how it affects people. Not just you, how it affects people in general. Just basic political literacy. By invested, I mean putting in the time and effort into actively keeping elected officials accountable, whether it's by voting, volunteering for campaigns, parties, or interest groups, 
writing officials are working outside the system by organizing or attending protests, demonstrations, events along those lines, even taking the opportunity to run for office yourself. But we live in a society where we have a sizable percentage of the population that believes to this day that former President Barack Obama wasn't really born in Hawaii and that he's a socialist communist Muslim with an anti-white Christian pastor. Explain that shit. While Donald Trump is an expert businessman with several bankruptcies to his name and a devout Christian who has stated he has no need for forgiveness when the need for forgiveness is one of the few non-negotiables in Christianity. We live in a society where people believe that Nazis were leftists because socialist was in their name. I'm sure these same people also believe North Korea is a fledgling democratic republic because its full name is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. We live in a society where many people don't see the importance of voting, so they just don't. We're lucky to hit 60% turnout. But I think this is all by design. In many other countries, an educated populace is considered vital. And when the government does something a sizable percentage of citizens don't like, they take to the streets. Even in countries with limited freedoms, there's a tipping point that leads to disaffected citizens taking to the streets, such as the Arab Spring. But in the U.S., we may have protests, but these are usually small in comparison, especially in relation to the population overall. In something as basic as voting, we don't get out there and vote. And we sit back while voting rights are being eroded. I think there are a number of factors as to how our populace has gotten to the point that we can't sustain a healthy democracy. Our education system is tiered, meaning the type of basic K-12 education you're likely to have access to is largely based on class, race, and region. In most places in the U.S., K-12 school funding is largely based on property taxes. Generally speaking, the more your property is worth, the higher your property taxes. And if you live in a neighborhood that is more in demand, which likely is going to have higher home prices because of that demand, property taxes are going to be higher. And that means more funding towards local schools. But in areas that are not as much in demand, neighborhoods where people might be leaving or have already left, or where the makeup of the neighborhood is less desirable for moneyed families, the housing will be cheaper. It may also be more likely to have a transient population. The people who own properties see them as cheap investments instead of homes to live in and raise families. And so they rent them out to tenants who may or may not establish roots there. All of that contributes to a smaller tax base and less money for schools. Is money everything? No, but it does make a difference between quality facilities and rundown buildings. It makes a difference between being able to offer a diversity of quality learning experiences, such as advanced placement or international baccalaureate courses, language courses, and immersive language experiences, the arts and music, and extracurriculars such as a number of different sports, academic clubs, and skill teams, and on the other hand, only being able to offer the bare minimum for students. It makes a difference between attracting quality teachers or having them run for the hills. Money is not everything, but it's a lot of it. And that's not even counting families that can afford to opt out of public education altogether and send their children to private schools. And on top of that, what values are being taught? 
Are we teaching poor and middle-class students to aspire to become cogs in the machine and respect authority? Are we teaching wealthy students that they're the future leaders and as such have no accountability? When we look at our political leaders, most of them, especially those who make it to federal and state office, are people of means, people of wealth. They're most often high-level business people and lawyers. It's not often that we get someone like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was a bartender in New York in a national-level office. And since she's been in office, she has been a favorite target of the right. Part of it is because of being a young Latina woman joining an institution dominated by older white men. But the other part of it is class. Working-class bartenders aren't supposed to become members of Congress. That's for the big boys. And while they can tell the rest of us what we need, we better remember our place. And class divides in the United States often overlap with racial divides. Even though racial segregation laws are no longer in effect, we still have segregated neighborhoods and schools and communities in practice. And institutionalized racism and discrimination are extra hurdles people of color are made to endure. And most of us work through it day to day and live life despite it. But if we point out those double standards and the absurdity of it all, all of a sudden we're the real racists who make everything about race in a colorblind society. Thanks, Reagan. And regionally speaking, states and regions of the country differ in the resources dedicated to education and how they approach it. In Michigan, for example, charter schools are huge. Charter schools are privately run schools that are at least partially publicly funded. These are free alternatives to neighborhood public schools that tend to attract kids from less affluent backgrounds whose parents want a great education for their kids but may struggle to afford private schools. The promise is that these charter schools with the corporate or nonprofit backing will educate students better than traditional public schools. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos came from this background advocating for the privatization of education through charter schools in Michigan. But the problem with charter schools is that they haven't been shown to be any better than regular public schools. So the promise doesn't necessarily match up to reality. In other regions, local control of school districts sounds great in theory. But in reality, this can mean that students are taught propaganda instead of facts, such as Southern history books and homeschooling curricula teaching children lost cause mythology and other types of white supremacist revisionist history, as well as students learning about creationism and its cousin, intelligent design, in science class. The teaching of propaganda erodes students' critical thinking skills and leads to movements such as anti-environmentalism, anti-vax, QAnon, and white nationalism, all causing real harm to our society in different ways. But the inconsistency of education in the U.S. isn't the only reason why it's so difficult for most Americans to be the kinds of citizens that can properly support a democracy. The other issue is that the nature of capitalism itself, particularly as practiced in the U.S., makes it much more difficult to take the time to be politically informed and active. We work long hours in jobs that are usually not protected by collective bargaining, or in other words, unions. Oftentimes, the less you make, the fewer benefits you're likely to have, including paid time off. And not only that, for most Americans, our health care coverage is tied to our employment. 
And outside of Medicaid or Medicare, which are only available for certain subsets of the population, employment is the least expensive and least restrictive way of obtaining health coverage for most Americans. Being cogs in the capitalist machine makes it difficult for many Americans to participate fully in our democracy. But we need to participate. To be honest, I think we're on a course where it's almost inevitable we're no longer going to be the empire we once were. But I don't think doom and gloom is the only possibility. Some of you guys might remember these books called Choose Your Own Adventure. If you're not familiar, these were kids' books that would give you choices on how you want the story to progress. And based on your choices, the novel will progress and eventually end in different ways. So it'd be something like, say, Paula is walking through a forest and comes across a cave. Does she walk into a cave or continue on the path? Cave, page 400. Path, page 462. And let's say you choose the cave and turn to page 400. And it says, Paula enters a cave and there's some food. And she meets a mouse named Steve, etc. And there might be more choices presented as you continue reading on. But if you choose the path and turn to page 462, it might say, Paula continued on the path, and as she rounded a corner, a chupacabra leapt out of the bushes and ate her. The end. In a sense, we're somewhere in the Choose Your Own Adventure book. For all we know, the 2016 presidential election could be the choice that has already set in motion our rounding the bend to death by mythical coyote. But we might still have a chance. Not necessarily at propping up the empire, because I don't know if that's really a worthy goal anyway. But we have a chance at coming out of this as a viable democracy and a healthier society. And that possibility is worth fighting for. It's hard. But we still need to fight. We need to be willing to speak the truth to our family, our friends, especially the apathetic among us. Apathy is privilege. We need to be honest about the worst impulses of the Trump regime and those in our society who don't see his extreme bigotry and cruelty as deal breakers. We need to be willing to protest, to write our elected officials, to support organizations that are fighting against the horrid actions of this administration and are working to alleviate human suffering. And we need to vote. And I don't just mean in 2020. I mean in the local and state elections that occur from time to time every year, sometimes at different times a year. We need to support ways that will reduce the opportunity cost for people who live paycheck to paycheck or are struggling to even do that to participate fully in a democracy, such as universal health care, equal access to education, more access to upward mobility, expanded voting access instead of voter suppression, and election day as a holiday. We need to do what we can until there is truly nothing left we can do. It might not seem like it now, but know that the truth does matter. Even if this is all for naught and the American empire doesn't end well, the truth can be available to the generations after us so they can learn from our missteps. The truth matters, not only in the present, but for generations to come. Even leadership and the decline of empire are real conditions in our true-to-life universe. But it also sounds like a storyline you would see in the world of comics. Brian, Phil, Daryl, and Sly 
explore the Marvel Universe and delve into Shazam, formerly known as Captain Marvel, in the latest in divisive issues. It's a really fun episode, tigers and business suits and more, so definitely check it out. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher, or go to franzradio.com slash divisive issues for this and all of the awesome episodes of Divisive Issues. And for all of the wonderful podcasts, blogs, and more from Flying Machine, go to flyingmachine.network. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and links to the show on various podcast players are posted there. If you subscribe, you can download episodes as soon as they're available. No lag time. Want to share your thoughts on an episode or talk about any story or issue related to politics, religion, or history? Go to Potstirer Podcast Discussion Group, enter it in on a Facebook search bar, and click to join. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.